Okay, we're going to be in 1 Samuel today. And um, I only posted on the screen the first seven verses. And now I'm realizing that we're going to, we're going to uh, go beyond that. We're probably going to go to verse 20, which is fine. I'll just read it to you. But it might also be helpful for you to turn on your device to that. Or if, you have a, if you're old school and you, you have the Bible, that's awesome in paper form. I love it. I love it. You're not alone. You're not alone. That whole section is the paper Bible section. We just finished up the book of Mark, and it was an incredible time, an incredible journey learning about Jesus and who Jesus is from a fresh perspective. We tried to kind of, in a way, detox ourselves or deconstruct our our minds of what we thought Jesus to be. Um, Sometimes our ideas of Jesus are like a ship that's been at sea for a long time. You get these barnacles and other growths and the things from the culture that have grown on top of the image of Christ. Mark is a great way to scrub those things off and get back to the essence of who Jesus is. And that's what we did. If if you want to go back, if you weren't here for the whole study, it's on our website. It's also on YouTube, I think. Yep. So you can go and you can be a part of it or re-listen and get more out of it. Um, but that was so fun. We are now going to be going into the book of First and Second Samuel. And I, I, I regard these two volumes as one work, First and Second Samuel, it, because they tell one continuous story. They tell one whole story that we'll get into. And that's what we're going to... This is kind of an introduction today. We might dip our toe in a little bit, but there's actually a lot of preliminary stuff for me to set right for you in this book so that we can get started off on the proper trajectory. How we start the conversation is typically how we'll end the conversation. So uh, starting a new book in the Bible is extremely important that we try to set it in its right context and in its right setting. The book, the book of First and Second Samuel covers over uh, a little over 150 years of, of Israel's history, um, 40 years with the, Phil- with the Philistine oppression, um, plus 30 years that Samuel grows up and becomes an old man, and then 40 years each for the reign of Saul and also for the reign of David. That's what we're talking about. And the reason the book is so important, and I hope to go into today why I think it's important for our time, But the reason the book is so important in the Bible is because it marks a major shift in several areas of Israel's place and position in the nation. It shifts in a lot of ways. This is a book that's on on the move. It moves. We will start at one place and we will end in another. It describes Israel's transition from the judicial leadership of the time. The book right before this is the book of Judges um, and into a um, monarchical leader, leadership um, of the kings. Eli was judge. We'll get to know him and his kids here pretty soon. Samuel served as the last judge. And though Saul was the first king, he was really more of a, in my opinion, a transitional type of a person because he also, he ruled and also um, did what the judges did. He plowed his fields at the same time. He lived at home and kind of ruled as needed. It's kind of a judge way. But then when we get to David, He's fully kinging. We're, 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 uh, Israel is thrust full, full thrust into, um, 
into more of a, a monarchical type of a, of a leadership. But most importantly, and arguably the entire point of the book, is that it describes the transition from the tabernacle to the temple. That is by far the overarching plot or overarching storyline of the Bible. Um, the book begins with the world falling apart. It's a very, very, very dark beginning to the book. The lamp was still burning in the tabernacle there in Shiloh, but only dimly, and we see a woman that's barren. Hopefully we'll get into that a little bit today. Early in, early in 1 Samuel, the Philistines, we're going to see that they capture the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into their own territory. It's a devastating, devastating situation, nationally speaking. It really marked the end of Israel. It was as cataclysmic and as huge of a world event as um, maybe more so than when the, than when the planes flew into the, into the two towers. It marked a major hit to the nation of Israel, um, major instability at that point. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, in that same, around the same time, Eli, the, the, the judge, and his sons die. And the Mosaic Tabernacle in Shiloh is completely destroyed as well. It's 1 Samuel 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6. So you can see these national emblems of both religion and state are taken down and destroyed. And you can just imagine, please do imagine this, the, the, main, the narrative of this First uh, and Second Samuel is narrative. It's telling a story. It's invoking your imagination. It's trying to get you to feel the feels of what it would be like to be in a situation like that. They go out to war and it doesn't go well. They go out to war again, but this time with their mascot, the Ark of the Covenant, and it, to their dismay, God, in their minds, doesn't show up. He abandons them and their Ark is taken and it's a show of that the Philistines' gods are bigger than our God. It's, a, it's, it's not just a national crisis. It's a psychological crisis. It's a, it's a spiritual crisis. What is going on here? That's kind of the dark place that we're at. And then the priest, the, the leadership structure that they were relying on, as flawed as it was, and we'll get into that, they were still relying on it. The whole family line dies. Eli and his two sons, they die, they die as well. And it just could not have been, it, that was a very bad day on the calendar, okay? To be sure, the, now, to be sure, the ark will return. <clears throat> David's gonna bring the ark back. Later, he's gonna have it set in Jerusalem. But throughout First and Second Samuel, the worship system, this is why I really need you to know this, the worship system described in Exodus and Leviticus is simply not operating, we don't see it going. It's stalled out. It's, um, it's not going. So the earlier chapters of First and Second Samuel describe the death of the Mosaic order. The death of the system as they know it at this point. Okay? However, <clears throat> in all of this darkness and all of this doom, Yahweh, as he does, intervenes to open, to open a womb, to trim the wick again, to create, as he always does, a future for his people. And I'm really hoping to see, and I'm hoping that your mind will get attuned to and that you'll have an appetite for seeing the repeated patterns in the Bible. I'm hoping that at some point, as we keep going, you'll go, I remember that, that reminds me of this. This is a story that happens on loop 
in the Bible, darkness and God moves in to create, including the first page. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Without form and void, good thing or bad thing? Someone say bad. Bad thing, yes. And then <clears throat> that's verse two, and then God moves in the rest of that chapter to bring form and inhabitation to this formless and void planet. So from the very beginning, we see darkness, we see chaos, we see waters of, of judgment on the earth, and we see Yahweh moving in to bring redemption, hope, love, peace, uh, form, inhabitation, all of those things. We see the same thing here. Here we go. In the very beginning, we see a, a uninhabited womb and Yahweh moving in to make something happen. It is, it is, there's, this book is filled with, filled with hope. <clears throat> the first major character, Samuel, was called to be a prophet to speak words that would initiate um, the construction of the new Israel, really. He will, with his words and through his leadership, he will initiate the construction of a whole other way of being. Built off the old, for sure, but also preparing for something very new. He's a very instrumental figure. Samuel guided Israel through a time of um, liturgical turmoil, political chaos, and in the process, he laid this, this foundation for a whole nother, uh, for the next level of Israel on the world stage, to be honest. Second um, Samuel ends with David's census. You remember, uh, he takes the census and it, it creates this plague that devastates Israel. This is Second Samuel chapter 24. And to stop the plague, do you remember what David did? David purchased the threshing floor. Um, and he sacrifices on it. And at first, when you're reading this, that might seem like a really weird way to end the book, but then you realize that it brings the story of the, this overarching story of the house of God, the tabernacle that was destroyed moving to the temple. It brings it to a very, a very fitting place. This threshing floor will later become the site where the temple will be built. And so the story that began with, with the desecration of the Mosaic tent and the Mosaic order ends with David purchasing the place for Solomon's temple. Very, and so again, you can see a starting point and an ending point. And the whole way through, through the minutia of this, he's going to get into the minutia of, this, of the political movement that's going on at the time and the wars and all of these things. You've you're you got to get God's eye view that we're moving towards something. Doesn't it give you hope to know right now that if you were to go up to the 30,000 foot prophetic view, that you would know that in, in all of this, we are moving somewhere. And that's what I wanted to do this morning, to give you a, a 30,000 foot view, to know that this book, just like Genesis 1, starts in one place and ends in Sabbath day rest. It's moving towards a goal, an end in sight. Same with First and Second Samuel. It's going to start really bleak, but then we're going to start to move through all the turmoil, through all the stuff, through all the political upheaval, through all the betrayal and the war and the, all the crazy stuff that we're going to see in First and Second Samuel. All the real lives, and through it all, we're going to see that, we're, that God is faithfully moving us towards his, his goal and his end. And I thought that is what gives this book so much incredible relevance for us today. And, down here in the trees, life seems pretty chaotic sometimes. 
we sometimes we think, how can there be a form to this? How can there be a sovereignty in this? It seems so random. It seems so uh, chaotic. It seems so formless and void. And that's exactly how these real people felt in these moments that we're going to read about. They felt lost. They didn't know where God... I, I love the Bible because it deals with real people that go through a very complicated existence, a lot like, like us. We thirst for simplicity, do we not? We come to the Bible and we look for this is this and this is that. That's what we're looking for. We, we, you know, when we want to lose weight, we look for the program that says, you don't have to work out, you just take this pill. Real simple, right? We love that stuff. The easy answers, right? And yet we know, here's, comple here's complexity, here it is. It comes at us every day. Our lives are very complex. Inwardly, you're very complex. Outwardly, the world is very complex. And I that's, this is what drew me to the Bible as a young man. Um, it mirrored life. It mirrored the complexity of life. It wasn't uh, so simple as this is that and this is this. There's things in there. But it gets so much more um, beautifully, wonderfully messy. And the Bible doesn't apologize for it. It's, very, it's a very honest book. That's what we're going to talk about, and we'll get through all of that, and yet it offers hope in the midst of that to know that we're going somewhere. God will have his way. God will have his way. What does this mean for us? Well, for one thing, First and Second Samuel is about God getting us where, to the place where, um, well, getting us from where we are to where we know we were meant to be. That is hope in and of itself. Who is satisfied with where we are? I'm going to put my hand down. I'm not. I, I, I want so much more. I, I intrinsically know there's so much more for me, right? And, and yet, there's all these complications. There's all these things that we face. First, Samuel, First and Second Samuel tells us how God gets us from the place that we are with an honest look with how we are. It doesn't get bashful about it. It faces it right uh, head on. And yet, how God can work in the most messy situations. And this has a ton to do with leadership. First and Second Samuel are a great place to either improve your leadership or to realize that you're not a great leader um, or, and or all of the above. Okay? Um, it has a lot to do. Americans like to pretend that the world works democratically. That, ref that reformation comes from the masses. But the reality is there is a huge symbiotic relationship between those who are leading and those who are being led. That is very true, whether it comes to a, a political leader or cultural leaders or church leaders. There is a huge, um, there's a huge connection between the health of a leader or the way of a leader, the vision of a leader, the culture of a leader, and therefore the vision or the leader uh, or the vision of those that are being led and the culture of, of the society. And at the outset of First and Second Samuel, Israel is very sick. There's like a spiritual disease going through. And she is ruled by, we find that she's ruled by the Philistines, bullied by the Philistines. And worse, she's led by Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, which are just some of the most corrupt leaders that you'll find. Samuel's birth is not just about a miracle of God opening Hannah's womb, but it's about the miracle of God birthing a new kind of leader in the nation. That's, what it's, that's actually what it's about, mostly. 
through the subsequent decades, Yahweh will eliminate Eli and his sons. That's what we're going to learn. He's going to take, he's going to purge the land of bad leaders, and he's going to begin to raise up a faithful priest. And through the efforts of Samuel, he's going to install Saul and then David, and they're going to fully drive the Philistines out of the land by the time this book is over. There's going to be a purging. Second Samuel ends with an Israelite king sitting on the throne. It starts with um, the Philistines are in charge. There's really not really a kingdom to be spoken of. And it ends with an Israelite king sitting on the throne receiving tribute from the nations that used to oppress God's people. Again, there's that movement again. Israel's situation at the end of 2 Samuel, let, let me just give you a disclaimer, it's by no means ideal. It's not perfect. That's not what I'm saying. Much of the wisdom about leadership in this book is given through negative examples, including Saul and David. Saul abandoned Yahweh really early in his reign. Um, David, you know the thing with David. David, too, fell into sin with Bathsheba. He never, because of that sin, he never recovered his earlier um, vigor and excitement. Um, David's weakness, because of his weakness, and his, uh, it rippled into his family and caused uh, openings for people that would dissent and would come in and rebel, people like Joab and his son Absalom. That all leads back to the fissure in David's own integrity and weaknesses. All of those things are real, and yet Israel's condition, at the same time, Israel's condition at the end of the book is undeniably better than their condition at the, in the beginning of the book. So, 1 and 2 Samuel gives particular attention to the failure of Israel's leaders to raise up leaders for a new generation. Interestingly enough, the only guy, the only leader in here that has successful children, you know who that is? King Saul. <laughs> Eli's sons are crazy. Samuel's sons go off the rails. David's kids are all over the place. Saul's, they have some problems, but they're... By and large, they're the most functioning you know, leaders that we, can, that we can find. So this will teach us how to be the leaders we need to be for our generation and how to help raise up the next leaders of our generation, um, which is what a society depends on. Society depends on stages. If you're, first of all, for you to, so every one of you in here has a leadership calling to some degree on your life because anybody who, is an in, who has influence over anybody is a leader to some degree, whether it be at your job or whether it be just in your home with your family, um, with your kids, with your husband, with your wife. You are leading in some way, and we are, we are called to the degree that we steward that leadership, to that degree our family goes, our church goes, our society goes, our city goes. And you'd be surprised at how incredible leaders and people that um, are faithful and doing well Small amounts of people, the minority, can really influence an entire culture. We feel outnumbered here in Seattle. We really do. And that makes us want to shrink back from leadership and wanting to um, do these types of things. But I'm here to tell you, um, throughout history, you find incredible examples of very few amounts of people infecting a huge group of culture by being faithful to God and by doing the right things. Um, this is our cultural moment to shine. So this book will inspire us to, um, what's the word I want to use? To realize, 
to accept and to realize the leadership that you've already been given. Not to shirk it, not to be passive about it, but to realize it, rise up to it, and take it. It will help you to increase incrementally in your leadership influence. Um, and it will, it will be a very painful reminder of where we lack in leadership. And it will ultimately point to the ultimate leader. The beautiful thing about the Bible and where it's heading, and now we'll talk about, let's see, the, the 50,000 foot view. We know that the Bible is heading towards Jesus. He is the ultimate king. We're gonna see that today. He, I hope, he is the ultimate king. He is the, he is the one that we're, all, that we're all going for. Therefore, in the Bible, when you're looking at other leaders, the good leaders and the bad leaders point to Jesus. A good leader that points to Jesus is someone that, has, uh, that acts like him on a smaller scale that we know he will ultimately fulfill on a larger scale in the New Testament. Uh, the bad leaders, when you're reading the text, it makes you crave a good leader. Even the, even the good leaders that do bad things, like David, you're, you're gonna root for David through this book. David is a likable person. He's someone that you wanna be on the guy's team. You wanna see him win. You meet people like that, or you, I just want the guy to succeed. He's, just, he's got that affect. David is that guy. You want him to succeed, and yet you're gonna get very acquainted and maybe disillusioned with some of his character, and even in his faults, you'll say, man, you'll feel this tension between, man, what you could be and what you're not. And you'll feel that, ah, that hole in your chest while you're reading about David. And, what, and that hole is supposed to be there. The Bible is invoking that in you so that you look to someone else. Someone like David and yet better than David. And that's the whole point. That's what we'll get to. So let's... Um, we all lead, the question is how. So let's, let's, let me read, here's what I'll do. I'll read the first 20 verses of the first chapter so we can say we got into it at least a little bit. Um, and we'll, we'll make some comments. This first chapter is very introductory and sets the tone for where Israel is at. So here we go. Verse one of chapter one. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of, of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And we'll get into that in a second, but that right there, Hannah had no children, sets the plot of the book. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went, year by year. <laughs> and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. That's probably where it's gonna end on your slide. We, I'm gonna keep reading to verse 20. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
said the narcissist. I'm just kidding. It <laughs> <clears throat> doesn't say that. My interpretation. Uh, um, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting um, on the seat beside the, door, the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. By the way, is this a temple or tabernacle? Tabernacle. Yeah, it says temple. The idea there is that it's been that this portable tent has been in Shiloh permanently for such a long time that it's, it's beginning to have the permanent definition of a temple at this point. That's, that's the idea there. Um, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. It's a vow of a Nazarite. And as, she, and as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be uh, a drunken woman, uh, which is super interesting here. To me, this speaks more of the spiritual state in the nation of Israel. If the priest sees a woman praying the way you and I would pray and he assumes that she's drunk, to me that tells me that um, prayer nationally is pretty low. This is pretty a, a normal way to pray. We can find other places in the Bible where this is repeated, but she's hysterical, she's crying, but she's praying, she's not drunk, and Eli can't even recognize what a good prayer looks like. So, he says to her, he rebukes her. Like, so here's, here's Eli's strong leadership coming out right here, his bedside manner. He comes to her and says, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah, Hannah answers graciously and she says, no, my Lord, I am a woman of trouble, uh, that I'm, I'm troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been poured out, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Wow, that's a prayer, isn't it? Pouring out your soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Something cathartic about that cry and about that, that, um, that lament. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, that means not right away, but in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Okay, here's what's interesting about this whole, the, the, about this story as the opener. It's really interesting because if you look at, First and Second Samuel. Um, when, well, when you th if you've read First and Second Samuel through, and when you think of First and Second Samuel, at least for me, the thing that I do not think of is a story of, like this. I think of political intrigue. I think of wars and struggles. Um, I think of major shifts in the religious and political life of ancient Israel. Those are the the big, ginormous kind of. Uh, global things going on. I think of world historical epic-making events. 
Um, it's a, these, these major events take place at the sanctuaries of Shiloh and then eventually Zion, um, uh, you know, on battlefields, the battlefields of Aphek and Gilboa, um, the royal houses of both Saul and David, the cities of Ramah and Jerusalem. You find these big ideas, these social movements and uh, cultural shifts in the book. And yet, at the beginning, the writer calls our attention to a humble woman living in the backwaters of the hill country of Ephraim, weeping over her dead womb. It's a real huge contrast to the, to the style of the rest of the book. Why did the writer choose to start the story here? You've got to ask yourself that as you're reading this. Why did he choose this as a starting point? What has Hannah has to do with politics? What is, how do you say her town? Ramathane Zophim. How do you even say it? Where are you from? I'm from Ramathane hyphen Zophim. In other words, not the Ramathane you might be thinking of, but the, well, the more less known Ramathane, the Zophim one. And people go, oh yeah, but in their minds they have no clue, you know. Oh yeah. What does that have to do with Jerusalem? And here's where you find out everything. Hannah is the micro picture of the state of Israel at this moment. Hannah means, by the way, do you know, anybody know what Hannah means? It means favored one. It means favored one. And she was the favored wife of Elkanah, her husband, but her condition offers an immediate contrast. How could the favored one be barren? Immediately, when you read the book, you're, you're struck with this big, these two big ideas, favored, blessed, barren, cursed, all in one person. And that's meant to strike you. In her barrenness, Hannah takes her place with the wives of all the patriarchs. She's in good company. Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. And in Genesis, when you go back to barrenness and you study what this idea means in Genesis, it means something very big. It's hard for us to understand because we live in such an individualistic culture. It means something big for a woman by herself, just individually. It means something big for her identity. And we can, that certainly was present there. It meant a lot for Hannah in her cultural and societal situation. And typically, that's as far as us Westerners can go to, to identify with this. But you need to understand, <clears throat> biblically, it has much, much, much bigger, bigger meaning. In Genesis, these, all these women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, who were barren, Genesis, these women's barrenness didn't just mean something for these women individually or even just their families, but it threatened the fulfillment of God's promise of, an, of uh, their seed, their children, inheriting the promised land. It was a threat to the fulfillment of God's promise. Because, remember, God's promise um, is embedded with children. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you, I'm gonna make you into a nation through you having many, many children, right? So children then doesn't just take on an individual significance, it doesn't just mean a familial significance, it means a national significance, and if we keep tracing this idea backwards, we understand that the idea of children for Israel especially has a cosmic salvific kind of significance. 
Um, and I hope you know what I'm talking about. Barrenness is, barrenness is significant ultimately because God promised to what? From his very, what was God's very first promise? He would raise up the, quote, seed of the woman to, quote, crush the serpent's head. It is a child that will be the answer to the demonic war that, that is being waged the spiritual cosmic war that is being waged that caused sin, God's answer is through a child. So without a seed, there was no future for Israel. That's how important this is. Furthermore, Israel was, not, uh, or Israel was God's bride. And so a barren woman is the symbol of a fruitless Israel. She's favored of God. He's chosen her. She's the favored one, and yet she is barren. So Hannah, make no mistake about it, the reason the book has started out this way is because the writer is saying, how can I describe to you where the darkness, the brokenness, the barrenness, the hopelessness that Israel is in, I will, I'll zoom in on Hannah to show you that picture. Hannah represents a barren Israel, the favored one of Yahweh, and that's why her story is the starting point here and why it's so significant. Therefore, the writer starts this national story with the question. Here's the question that should be in your mind. How can the favored one of Yahweh, Israel, be barren? It forces that question. How can a favored one be barren? And just a moment's reflection on that on the historical context of 1 Samuel will answer that question. Israel was barren because Israel was unfaithful. Remember the story? God told Israel as they, the, last, um, the last instructions from Moses to the people of Israel before he walked off the scene and, and died, before he left and left Joshua in charge, one of the last things he said was, you're gonna inhabit the land if you do what's right, if you follow God, if you stay close to Yahweh, you'll be blessed. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The, the, uh, the fruit of your land will be blessed. You will take over and you'll conquer and, you'll be, and you will be so blessed that your blessing will overflow to the rest of the world and bless the rest of the entire world. There's that cosmic vision. But... Well, and here it is. Let me just read it to you. De Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. What curses? Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl be. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. There's Hannah. And the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on. It reads on. Nations will come and take over. You'll lose your battles. Basically, everything that we're about to read here in Samuel has already been foretold to them. Has already said, look, you can put yourself in a position where you can be blessed or you can put yourself in a position where you will be cursed. That's the idea. Does this remind you of anything? I'll give you a moment to pause on that. Think to the very beginning. 
out of all the trees in the garden that you can eat, I'm going to give you a choice. You can be blessed, but if you eat of this tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's a choice. Now, here's what, what I think. Um, it's a, the idea is to put, it's, it's a, uh, you know, the word, to, uh, the word tov and ra in the Hebrew language, good and bad. More than, more than not, more often than not, did you know that tov and ra is not used as a moral tov and ra? In other words, you're a sinful person or you're a righteous person. It's more, more so, it is used that way, but more so it's used as a functional good or bad, like a wisdom thing. You see this all through the Psalms. You see this uh, through the writings of Solomon. In other words, um, I, I, this is a great analogy because I actually saw this happen. I saw a kid um, when I was, I was gonna guest speak at a church and I was in a gym like this and I was actually in the hallway like that and I was waiting to be announced onto the stage. And I was just a kid. I was, I was like 14 or something. And <clears throat> I was in this hallway and I was about to come out and preach. And I saw this little kid. Like, so imagine me looking out and I can't see the crowd. They're off to the right. I just see a hallway into the gym. And only half the gym is filled with people. And I see this little toddler, like Catherine's age, toddle across the hallway with her parents' keys except it was a he, and I didn't think anything of it. He just goes that way, and there's kids playing in the back, and I'm waiting for my cue, and then all of a sudden, I see this flash of light in this arcing, and I see the kid fly through, like, across the hall. I see this body fly across the hallway, and then I see the kid get back up and go to get the keys out. And I see the dad come running and scoop up the kid before, before he, can, he can do it. So here, Tova Ra, Ra, right? Bad, bad. But was the kid a sinner? No. It's, he just did a not wise thing, right? And that's the idea that in the, in the beginning with this tree, the knowledge of good and evil... To want wisdom and to, to uh, those types of things, God was saying, look, not going to go well for you. Don't do that. Don't, even, don't, don't, um, don't try to be like, like me in that regard. I'm the owner. You're the tenants. Stay that way. And that way it will functionally, wisely go good for you. Now, let me, let me do it this way. Let's say I tell Noble. Do not stick my keys in that light socket. It will, go, it will go bad for you. And he says, my dad doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to be what's right. At that point, it moves from a wisdom tove and raw to a moral tove and raw at that point, right? Because at that point, it's not just about function anymore. It's actually a layered and complicated at this point. It's not going to go well for him, but at the same time, he's directly disobeying his dad. It becomes a moral thing. That's what I think we find in the tree, and that's what I think we find throughout. I think Moses is saying, just like the tree in the garden, look, if you, if you follow God's commandments, not only will it be morally right, because he's God and you're taking this position, your rightful position under him, trusting him, but it will just, it's just wise. 
He's telling you things that will put you in a position where he can bless your life. And it will go good for you and you'll fulfill your purpose in blessing the rest of the nations. When you live this way, the law of Moses is very good. It's perfect. It's a way that people can be blessed. And therefore also, if you don't do it, not only is it morally bad, but it's functionally bad as well. It's just not gonna go well for you. It's not wise to do this. You're gonna die. Other nations will take over. You'll end up being just like them. You'll be infected by this gangrenous sin of thinking that, you're, that you know more than God. And from that point on, everything will start to unravel at that point. See? So right away, what we can see from the Bible is that the idea of sin is a very complicated idea. It's not just about um, obey, disobey. That's usually as far as we take sin, obey or disobey. It is that, but it's more than that. It, so, what am I saying here? I'm saying the way we live does matter. I am blessed and I am forgiven and I have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But there are things in my life that I'm still reaping today because I put myself in a bad position earlier. It doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. It means that I did something unwise or some things unwise that I'm now still having to live with those consequences. It's, I'm not as blessed as others. It's really, in that way, it makes a lot of sense. Why am I not as blessed as others? Is it because God loves someone more? No. Is it, no, it's not that. It's that someone obeyed where I did not. Someone put themselves in a place where they followed God's instructions and and trusted him, and now they are reaping the benefits of that. Um, If you ever have childhood friends, you you understand this. I have childhood friends, and we grew up together, and I've seen the decisions that they've made, and I've seen the decisions that I've made, and I can make a comparison. God loves us both the same. We have callings on our lives and all of those things and yet in some ways my life is going better than some of my childhood friends because I haven't made some poor decisions and in some ways my life is not going as good as other friends because they've made good decisions where I decided not to. I decided to take matters into my own hands and make my own decisions and become the owner rather than just the tenant. See? So it's very practical here. Why is Israel the way they are? Why are they so devastated? If they're the favored ones, why are they so devastated? Well, because they've made some really, really, really bad, chronically bad choices. They went into the promised land. And you can, again, you can see this repeated from Genesis on. The, the sin pattern is saw and took. Eve saw that the fruit was going to make her wise, so she took. Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, whoever they are, we can have a talk about that later, but the sons of God saw the, the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took. Later on, um, Lot and Abraham are standing, and they're looking one way, and they're looking the other, and, and Lot saw Sodom and Gomorrah, and that it was good, and that it was fruitful, that it was um, lush land, and he took. The pattern goes on. In the Bible, learn this, folks, if you're wanting to read the Bible on yourself, in the Bible, repetition leads to meaning. That's ancient Hebrew meditative literature. 
Repetition leads to meaning. And that's how, you, that's how you will figure out the things to pay attention to in the Bible and the things to say, oh, that's just a supporting point, see? Here in our story, what's repeating? Israel had a choice again in Deuteronomy. You remember the famous verse in Deuteronomy, behold, I've put before you this day life and death. Choose life. Where are we at again? We're back at the tree. Here we are. Let's do it again, God says. Behold, I've put before you life and death. Choose life so that it will go well with you. But if you choose this, you're gonna be cursed, you're gonna die. What, why are they there? Because they've chosen to be here. And now their land is they're just, they're devastated and we come to a very, very dark moment. And, what, and so what happens again? We're on repeat, what does God do? He comes and brings, well, did we read that part? Yeah, we read that she was, that she, yeah, okay, sorry. Um, where, where is it? They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. So she's in a, where's Hannah at? She's in a desperately dark situation. There is no hope. IVF is not working. All medical things are not working. Prayer is not working. It says, look at what it says here. Look how horrible this is. Um, where is it at? Um, Verse 7, so it went on year after year. You know what I'm saying? Doesn't that just turn your soul to ice or maybe it's just, it's cold in here. But it's one thing to face a trial. It's one thing to face suffering. But it's something else when you face it year after year. This horrible cyclical thing was going on year after year after year. She's provoked by her enemy. By the way, if you're wondering if she is an actual mirror for the nation of Israel, also the nation of Israel has a rival at this time. The Philistines are being more blessed than them and they're taunting them just like Penina is taunting Hannah. It's what the writer is trying to show us here. And it just went on. There is no trial that is as hopeless as an ongoing, seemingly endless trial. And it tells you here that Hannah and Israel, their state is hopeless. It's beyond human control. There's no fix at this point. It's not like if, if you just look at it differently or read this book or take this class or if we do this. No, no, it's, it's, it's trying to tell you that Israel is as bad as it gets There's no way of them getting out. They are dead. They are barren. And just as much as a woman has zero control over whether she gets pregnant or not, Israel has zero control whether they get out of this or not. That's that's what it's showing you here. They're desecrated. And she cries out to God in this act of desperation, basically saying, it's up to you. Have you ever been in a moment like that? A prayer that says, God, if you don't come through, then it's not going to happen. It's that, it's, that, it's that where I'm, I'm out of options. I've exhausted my resources. Nothing is going to work. If you don't come through, it's not going to happen. And he doesn't come through right away. Look at, so they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew his wife. It's not talking about one instance. It says the Lord remembered her and in due time. In other words, things went on normal for a while. 
They had normal marital relations for a while. Not pregnant, not pregnant, not pregnant. And in, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. So this is a lot like life. When you first read this, you think, you know, Hannah went to this retreat, this, this worship retreat, and she had this moment. And after that moment, she got pregnant and it was fixed. What is that? That's our craving for simple, isn't it? Oh, nice. A mountaintop experience. You know, a little marital bliss and booyah. And yet, it says, and in due time. In other words, it didn't get fixed right away. Things went on, maybe even got worse. And then in due time, in God's time, she bore a son and she called his name Samuel. So what do we have here? What is, this, what is the book of Samuel? It is about a death and a resurrection. It is about the death of a womb, the death of a nation, and the beginning of a resurrection and the beginning of a hope. Samuel's birth meant so much more than Hannah having a prayer answered. If this, if this mirrors Israel, it means that God is doing something new. He is doing what he's done since the very beginning. You remember Genesis 1, the earth is formless and void. Ta, tovarah, roar at me. Rah. Yes, bad, bad thing. So God goes, God moves in and he begins to bring form, and he, br he brings inhabitation, and he creates mankind for this Sabbath day beautiful worship rest. That's where we find our fulfillment. It, mankind is on day six. Right after that is the telos, the whole point of it, where the seventh day is mentioned three times. It's hallowed, it's consecrated. What we have is this progression, starting in formless and void, and God moving through the seven days to the making man in the seventh day and we get this whole point. There's not a time stamp after the seventh day. After every other day, it's evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. In Genesis 1, that's a literary mechanism to move the reader forward. We're moving forward. Evening, morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day. Evening, morning, evening, morning. And seventh day doesn't have an evening, morning. In other words, the writer is saying, this is the point of life. Mankind dwelling with God. That's the point. That's fulfillment for a human. Mankind dwelling with God in Sabbath day rest and worship. Mankind was created to be centered on God. This is part of who you are. This is in your DNA. You were meant to be centered on God and centered on other, your neighbor. Read it. It's, first, it's from the first page of the Bible. Chapter 1, 26 through 28. What did Jesus say? Remember? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What are the two things he said? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, centered on God, Sabbath day rest, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. We are, we are meant, we are made as humans. You are made. You will not be fulfilled. You won't fulfill yourself. You'll be contorted and twisted until you move to center toward God and move to center outward to others. That is what it means to be human. That's Christian anthropology from chapter one. But what happens? Mankind breaks fellowship with God. Remember? Chapter three, the snake shows up. Mankind breaks fellowship with God. 
and death reigns again. And what does God do? He comes. Right? He comes. There's, there's another death. There's more chaos. And God, what does he do? He comes. It's the same pattern. From, this is the third page of your Bible. Man sins, God moves in. He doesn't shame away. He doesn't hide. Who's the ones hiding? Someone say, we are. We are. Humans. We're we're hiding. God's coming. Where are you? Where are you? He moves to bring it right. And what does he say? This is Genesis 3.15. The woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. He deals with it. If you, re- if you go back and, re- and read it, look at the order in which he does it. Let me just, so I don't butcher it for you, let me just get it right. Genesis 3. Look at what happens. Look at the order in which he does this. And the Lord, um, he says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, with the woman whom you gave to be, me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God, so then he moves to the woman. He says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God, so the Lord God goes to the serpent. Man, in other words, mankind sinned, but God's beef is with the serpent. He go, he'll deal with mankind, but look, he goes in order of the infraction here. He goes to the serpent first, and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life, and here's how I'm gonna solve this problem. From the very beginning, here's how it's gonna be. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall strike his heel God already calls this cosmic play from the very beginning in other words I know as God how it's all going to play out through history and I'm going to send my son is this a God who's committed to hope and resurrection I hope you're seeing that. That's my whole point of going down this rabbit trail. I hope you're seeing that God, from the very beginning, does not show even a hesitation or a wavering in coming after his wayward people. From the first page to the third page. Therefore, what is the plot of the Bible? What is the major, major plot of the Bible? The major plot of the Bible is God making a way for mankind to dwell with him again. That's what it's all about. And that loop, that will be on loop from the whole, from the whole time to Exodus. He takes them out of Exodus. He brings them to the mountain. And here come the laws, the Mosaic laws. Why? He's trying to make a way for them to dwell with. How does a sinful man dwell with a holy God? Make a tent, Moses. You'll, I'll meet you at the mercy seat. Exodus 14, 14, I think. I will meet you at the mercy seat. Or it might be later, but it's like a 2020 or a 2121. It's, some, it's one of those. 
I'll meet you at the mercy seat in the tent. Uh, That's where we will be together again through sacrifice, through atonement for your sins, through all of these things. And now I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to bring you to a temple. And you have a decision to make. So here we are again. Here we are again in Samuel. There is a, there is a favored barren one. Tovarah. Rah. Yeah. Bad. Bad thing. And what happens? God begins to move. In his time, in due time, he begins to move. And he brings life from death. That's the story of Samuel. He brings life from death. What is Samuel here to do? I'll end, I'll end here. What is Samuel going to do? What's he here to do? Who is he preparing a way for? The king who? I'd say, I would say after Saul. Yeah. Samuel is a very important figure who came from a barren woman to prepare the way for the Davidic king. Does that remind you of anything? Except now going hyperlink forward. Who is it? John the Baptist, yeah. Was born of a barren woman to prepare the way for the, capital T, the Davidic king who will bring hope to the chaos of our world. You guys, can you appreciate the intricacies of the Bible? It's so interwoven, so up on top of itself. It's so, it is by far the most beautifully constructed ancient book in the world because it's divine and it's telling this story. What we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 1 is what we learn from Genesis chapter 1 and that is God is a God who brings resurrection. He brings life from death and he does it through people. Genesis chapter 1, he made male and female in his own image. The word is selim in the Hebrew. And it referred to a king that would make a statue of himself to represent himself in the far reaches of his, of his kingdom. So if you were traveling through, you'd go, oh, this land belongs to this guy, this king. That's the idea. God made you and I to be his image bearers. Uh, the word image is not just a noun, it's a verb. We are to be imaging God to the farthest regions of the earth to bring everything under the kingdom or the rule of God. How is he doing this? How is he bringing harmony and peace and redemption? Through you, (laughs) through me. You are his selim, his demuth, that's likeness. They're synonyms in Hebrew. That's what you're here for. Through leadership. That's why what you do matters. That's why putting yourself in a position where he can bless you on the far in Seattle matters. That's why that matters. How is he going to do it? By having you blog about it or go out on the street and pre- maybe, but it's mostly going to be through our lives. Putting ourselves in a position where he can bless us is good leadership as we're going to see. And here he's, so he's got Samuel, this new Tselem, this new Demuth, a new leader who's preparing a way for the Davidic king. 
And let's hyperlink forward to right now. What is this day? May 1st, 2022. New Selims and Demuths made right here to make good choices, to prepare a way for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come and rule and reign again. You have purpose. That's what 1 Samuel is all about. 